Scribe is the magic behind Colossus Transcripts, and Scribe is the presenting sponsor of this episode of Making Media. One of the best decisions we made at Colossus was transcribing all of our audio into a searchable transcript library. Now, we had been using another provider who won't be named up until the summer of 2022, but we were constantly having issues with the accuracy of our audio, even if it was just the slightest bit impaired or hard to hear. Scribe has solved those problems and more. So whether it's training sessions that you're having, internal Q&As, or for media purposes like ours, the value of transcripts is huge and probably bigger than I even ever expected. And we're not alone. Scribe is the service that powers all of S&P Global, like Capital IQ, and their client list also includes our friends at Tegas. So go to joincolossus.com backslash scribe, that's S-C-R-I-B-E, and you'll unlock 150 minutes of free transcription. Again, joincolossus.com backslash scribe to test their capabilities. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. All right, welcome back to Making Media. I'm Matt Russell. I have Dom Cook by my side. We're testing a new format today. You will hear our conversation with NPR legend Eric Newsom shortly, and we have our famous debrief at the end of the show. But before we get there, we have heard your feedback. You want the open flow of information coming from Colossus. So we're going to lead off with some items you've been asking about or items we think you'd find interesting and will be asking about. So, Dom, I just want to start off thanking you for bringing this idea to life. Anytime. I'm a John Fio type character. If you haven't listened to that, invest like the best. His whole premise is that ideas are everything and execution is nothing. I'm fully behind John, and that's how I live my life. I throw things out there. Matt executes on them. I try and take the glory. Don't sell yourself short on execution. I wanted to start with a little bit of a state of the union on making media. It's something that, as we've been sharing information about, we're getting a lot of feedback and questions about how the actual show is going. And I was debating what to start out with first, but I think the thing that's overshadowed everything is the listener dialogue and the level of detail that's coming back to us from listeners. Now, there's some of this which is coming from friends of the podcast, people that listen to our other shows. What really surprised me is we mentioned our dream guests on a show a couple of weeks back. This was at the end of an episode, very late minutes of the episode, only the core diehard listeners were still there. And we've had total strangers reach out offering introductions to these guests and people with real connections. And that to me is just like a great example of the type of conversation, feedback, information that's coming back to us that has massively surprised me to the upside. Are you feeling the same type of energy and vibes, Dom? Yeah. I mean, even the fact that someone's commenting on something so late on in an episode makes me happy. And then the fact that they're also helpful. That's something I couldn't have even dreamed of before this started even two weeks ago. What that overshadows, and we are not ones to support loser energy. We're not participation trophy people. Joe the engineer has a famous story that his parents made him 
throw out any type of trophy that everyone on their team got. They were allowed to keep trophies if they won them. But if they got them just as a, a matter of participation, they were out in the garbage. We believe in that type of core value here at Colossus. The, the listenership data has not been as strong as I would have hoped for. It's probably about 65% of where I hoped it would be at this point in time. And we had a very famous podcaster send an email to our email address at hello at join Colossus that just said, bleep the numbers. And there was a little message in there. Great friend of the podcast, great podcaster, huge success. The message I think was strong. And if it weren't for all the detailed feedback that we're getting, I would be looking at those numbers a lot more intensely, but they are growing. I think it tells me that there's a distribution issue more than there is a quality of content issue, but it's something that we're going to keep being transparent about because I think there's a case to be made for a lot of companies giving out more information is not helpful, particularly for a public company. But in this case, I think it is useful to know, okay, from the start, great feedback from listeners, not necessarily great feedback from just pure data perspective. Yeah. I would also say we're not immune to bad feedback. We have a very important stakeholder in the show who's not afraid to tell us what he or she may think of the show each individual episode. So we're acutely aware that not everything's perfect. But I think there is really like clear evidence in the numbers that we have a distribution issue. I'm not going to lie. It's not easy to read those numbers on a daily basis. And I think the answer is I shouldn't be reading them on a daily basis. I should be focusing on the quality of the conversation, the product we're putting out there, which I am. Now I'm human. I look at that data, I don't come away smiling. But that means there's work to do, and I'm up for it. I think you're up for it, and it's going to be a fun journey. The early lessons on the distribution, Twitter was our distribution mechanism. And it was only after four days that we announced it via our newsletter. And if you take our average episode for another show, and let's say there's 10,000 downloads in the first seven days, 75% of those, so 7,500 downloads, will happen in those first three days. For our show, that number was 40%. So what it tells you was there was a huge impact from sending it out to our newsletter audience. Now, many of you are saying, Captain Obvious, does that really surprise you that sending something to an email distribution list will have that much power? Yes and no. I think that Twitter to us has always been one of the main mechanisms for distribution. And maybe we didn't appreciate the power of the newsletter, but it was shown in true colors for launch week and since then. Anytime we've used the newsletter to ask for something or to announce something, I think there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. I mean, the algorithm is famously changing on Twitter. So we're probably going to see some tailwinds coming from there. But it just highlights once again, owning your distribution channel is so important. Podcasting is a classic example where that's difficult because we don't own where the RSS feed lives. We don't own Twitter or LinkedIn or any of the other platforms that you might be able to reach a large number of people with, but we do own our newsletter. And that played a big role in the distribution of this in its early stages. So it was a good lesson for us. Definitely one we need to think about more strategically going forwards. Indeed. I would point you to a great Invest Like the Best episode last week with Jeff Green from the Trade Desk, where Jeff and Patrick spent a decent amount of time talking about vulnerability and whether that makes sense. I think it is surprising here Jeff mentioned vulnerability within his organization, why that's important. And I think announcing this type of data in public is actually something that opens you up to being vulnerable. If things are not working out as well, that is very tough to release data on. And I think I've seen it over history with so many different sectors. If you look at the offshore drilling space, they used to give monthly rig updates. And then things started going really poorly, and they all started pulling back on that. 
I think when information is great, you're very open to giving it out. And once information turns bad, doesn't feel as great, nor does it make as much sense when you're a public company, if I'm fully honest. But for this, I think there is very much a point in terms of, okay, being open and honest is what's going to help a lot of this creation of future content, sharing information about what it's really like to build these type of media businesses. So it's important to us and we're going to keep doing it. On to the next item, which I think we're getting a lot of ongoing feedback about is the quality bar. And I think you've had a few really great examples this week with business breakdowns, Dom. So bring us behind the scenes about what's going on with some of the episodes. Yeah. So the last week or so has been a business breakdown grind fest. We've had two episodes, one which sadly will never see the light of day. The other is on a business that's been asked for for a long time, found a great guest for it. We held our first recording last Wednesday, having done a significant amount of prep work up until then. A month or so, we poured into this. We wrote our report, shared it with the guests, went back and forth on key topics to hit and what to really flesh out to explain this business well. Recorded last Wednesday. And I think we've met our match on business breakdowns in terms of the quality bar. I think this particular guest has a higher quality bar than me, which I'm kind of ashamed to say. I was talking to them the day before yesterday, and they were saying... I think it's a B plus and Dom, I'm not a B plus student. So we're going to have to do this again. So we went back into the recording booth. We did a full new recording throughout the old one. That's not it. Spoiler alert. We're still workshopping this one, really trying to polish off the edges and make it into an A plus conversation. And honestly, it really fires me up. I love working with people like this because people who take so much pride in their own work and They said to me, they said, look, the incentive system is kind of different for us. You're there producing a weekly show. I'm here probably going to do this once in my life, which I'm hoping we can get them back again. But at the moment, going on the show once really wants to hit out the park. And it's been a really enjoyable process. I think the outcome, well, I'm hoping, and I, I know it will be really good. So it's fun to kind of workshop on this. There are some downsides, particularly for him. We had a call last night at 10 p.m. my time which went on for about half an hour. And I found out this morning that that cost $100. So there is some production costs going into this more than normal on a number of different levels. But it's kind of a fun behind the scenes look. I will say it's not all rosy. When you listen to the same piece of content 15 times, it starts to get a bit numb. But I think it's for the benefit of our listeners. So I hope it comes good. Yeah, I admire those who care that much about the content. We do run into issues sometimes where You have guests who want to pick out individual sentences and change the phrasing there. And that actually deteriorates the quality of the content. So it's very dependent on what they're looking at. And I can remember a specific experience where we were going up until 1 a.m. the night before a release. And this was very early days of breakdowns. And it was an excellent episode. And it was very much a perfectionist type mindset. And it was no surprise as to why this person was so successful at what they were doing. It actually brings up another category of guests, which I love, which are the ones that ask for the statistics after the episode. And we always give out the data to each guest. This is how you performed. Try to give them some imagery in terms of what that would look like in a stadium or some other type of setting. And there is a subset that I just keep personal track of in my head that asks, well, how does that compare to other guests? And some of them mention... Not that I'm competitive, I just like to know. Or some of them, I just like to know the analytics. It's no surprise as to who these people are. And I have some extra admiration for them. Yeah, 100%. There's also a subset of breakdowns, not exclusively just breakdowns. There's a subset of episodes that we've released that I rarely go back to 
no matter how high quality they are, just because I've listened to them so many times, I can't face listening to them. I need to go at least a year or two before I go back and resample those episodes. But they're fun in the moment to work on. One other quick thing from my side. We had a sponsor payment come through. This was a wire that I have been working on for probably six weeks, maybe two months. I mean, the wire itself has been six weeks. The actual payment has more been like three months. And I have to tell you, it was just this like great feeling. And it was a very big number. It's the type of wire that you want to be doing over the phone and all that. But it just reminds me of all of the challenges, a lot of the creator economy. That's a whole big thing. But the difference between some of these creators and true media businesses is who handles these types of situations. Something as small as like accounts payable and accounts receivable. There's a lot of effort that goes into that. And yes, you have some great partners who make it very easy on you. And then you have some other partners who don't make it easy on you. Or you have a change at one of those great partners and there's a new person handling it. And there's all types of logistical hoops and hurdles that you have to jump through. And there's usually no shortcuts to solving it. So it's something that I think when I look at people up and coming in media and where there really is an opportunity for synergy, not to use a overly used investment term, but where investment can really help is building around some of those business operations or just using the capabilities of bigger groups. It's something that I remember listening to Mike from the Churning Group talk with Dave at Barstool when they first made that investment. And I just wanted to get inside the head of the Churning Group and what they were thinking about. And one of the things they mentioned was just how all of the finances were basically running an Excel sheet and they had all of these different assets. There's this famous thing about they own horses, but just dealing with uncollected money and all these different things. It's like, yeah, obviously there's a huge opportunity for them to succeed as a business, just focusing on the content and letting somebody else come in and help with some of the other logistics that can turn the business into a much more profitable, much more cash generative operation just by making that investment. Yeah, it's been an interesting thing for me to watch you go through this process. What do you think the average lead time is between invoicing and getting paid? How many times do we get paid on time? If we did it as a percentage of our revenue, it's actually higher. If it's a percentage of invoices that get paid on time, it's much lower. So that would just tell you that our biggest customer does a very good job of paying on time. It's always the tail that's much more difficult to deal with. And they're not small enough where they don't matter. When you're a small business, they all kind of matter. But man, it's painful. I mean, I had ones that were outstanding for over a year. I can go into like a full episode on sponsorship. But the media agencies are absolutely amazing. I am convinced that they set me up with somebody. They just keep looping in new people. You go back to the person who's senior and they're saying, I'm attaching so-and-so. And I swear they put me in touch with a person who didn't exist. Like I trying to find her information so I can make a phone call. The answer is always try to get on the phone. I don't think she existed. Her email signature was one of those default things where it said like enter location and then it had a blank for phone number. Tried on Facebook, Instagram, any type of social media platform, couldn't find her. And I'm like, I think this is a legitimate tactic. And I had to use some really, really crazy tactics. And this was like well into the six figures in terms of a contract. So it really mattered to the business. And eventually I hunted it down. But man, it took up a lot of time. Sounds like you're talking to ChatGPT and trying to phone them. <laughs> the answer is you're not going to get <laughs> three would have been more useful and more helpful than the person on the other side of this. This was just an automated response system, apologizing for the delay. At least that story has a happy ending. We could have a much longer conversation on sponsorship. We have been getting a lot of questions on that, which we will get to an answer and think about a creative way to do that. Anything else before we jump to the episode? 
Yeah, one last thing is we had a big week in terms of our business bringing in pioneers. So we'll do a much bigger episode, like you talked about sponsorship, a much bigger episode kind of on our business model and how we work with certain part-time fans of the show. We call them pioneers. They help basically across the board with everything that we do. Um, And there are power users. There are 20 true fans, if you like. And we brought six more on board last week. For the perceptive among you, you will see a link at the bottom of our newsletter every Sunday that if you wanted to click on it and go through, you could join the process too. But effectively, they help with research. They help with finding awesome resources on the back of every episode. And it's cool to see more people join the Slack channel and the business more broadly. Very excited to work with them. Gives us a ton more leverage. Yeah, it's probably the most fulfilling thing at Colossus is working with the Pioneer program. And it's just such a diverse set of people across all different experience types, all different geographies. I am learning a ton from them. They're asking me questions, trying to learn from me. It's really just an insanely valuable community and group that's been working together. And there's some Hall of Fame pioneers, a guy by the name of Don Cook, probably the most famous of the pioneers, although it's up for debate. There's some conversations happening, but it's a stiff competition. Yes. That is something we will talk more about. We should dedicate more time to it. We get asked a lot of questions on it and we can share more there, but I will leave it. Just tease that and move on to our conversation with Eric Newsom. He is the author of the book, Make Noise. If there is one manual that I would give to people in terms of launching a podcast and how to think about it, it's Eric's book. He led NPR's podcasting efforts way back when in the mid 2000s and was there through 2015. Then he spent time building up Audible's audio operations. We had a lot of fun breaking down our podcast ideas with Eric, and we have a playful debrief after. So please enjoy our conversation with Eric. All right, Eric, we tried to avoid groupthink here, but Dom and I did find your book to be the best and most useful guide that we've come across for launching a podcast. And we'll jump a lot around in this conversation. But I thought the best place to start was with a fun concept that you mentioned that just made me shout out yes in agreement. So can you elaborate on why you have a picture of Richard Branson on your desk? It's funny because it's just 20 feet from where I'm at right now. And I have one in my home office too. When I wrote the bulk of that book, Make Noise, was I think 2019, I kept seeing the banners of the podcast app go, so-and-so interviewing Richard Branson. Oh, so-and-so interviewing Richard Branson. Our guest this week is Richard Branson. I'm like, what's going on with that? I decided to do a little bit of very easy research and realized that he had been on 30 different podcasts. Out of curiosity, I started listening. I'm like, what makes these conversations so different? And the answer became very apparent very quickly. There was no difference. Richard Branson was booking himself onto, or his people were booking him onto a lot of podcasts because he felt that they would ask easy questions and be soft interview. And he could basically put his message out without a lot of pushback, which is good for him. But I kept asking for the perspective of these podcasters. What's the benefit to you of being interview 29 or interview 30? And the truth is there is none. In a world of podcasting, where there's a thousand new podcasts every day competing with the thousand that came out yesterday and a thousand that came out the day before that, and a thousand will come out tomorrow. Why would you ever settle for being just another version of something else? And even in a world with that kind of glut and that kind of massive surge of interest and input, there's always room for distinction. There's a conversation I can have that no one else can have. 
game I play often with people, and I do it almost every day, is someone tells me about a podcast that they're thinking of or working on, and I point out to them all the reasons that it's not distinct. And over the conversation, we try to get it to the point where there's only one person in the world who can produce this concept, and it's that person. And it doesn't take a lot of work. People are doing creative things. The people around them encourage them and support them and say, yeah, 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 go, go, go. You should be doing this. They don't have a lot of people in their life who will push back and say, it really isn't as good as you think it is, or let's spend a little time trying to make it better. And I try to be that person. The way I show my affection from you is by having you not waste your time. In a world where it's hard to succeed, let's remove as many self-imposed obstacles as possible. That picture of Richard Branson sitting on my desk is a personification of that to me. Are we doing something that someone else could do? And if the answer is yes, we shouldn't be doing it. There is a visual cue to me all the time for something I need to remind myself of every day. We get that a lot that I would categorize as guests that have an agenda, whether it's a new book coming out and you see them make the rounds. You can adjust for that sometimes by saying, let's try to book this person six months later, one year later, but they still do have... 25 appearances that they made over the past six months or the past year. Do you think that a host with a different angle or with a very specific conversation that they want to have with that guest can actually have an impact and a differentiated conversation if the guest allows for it? Is it something where you should just simply toss away someone like Richard Branson because they have made so many appearances? Or are there ways to just keep that idea in mind of, okay, this is just going to sound the same as everything else if I don't take a different angle? While there may be some corporate types who are really interested in having an exact same message go out in medium after medium after medium, most people, that's not the case. And I'll tell you, nothing reinforced this idea with me more than when I was doing the promotion for this book back in 2020. They said, okay, we're going to line you up. We're going to have you do two days of interviews. And you're going to be back to back to back to back to back to back to back. It ended up being a total of 80 interviews over a course of a couple of days. And my publicist, when they sent out the press release, they also sent out a list of suggested starter questions. Of those 80 interviews, 65 to 70 of them just read those five questions. I got to the point where I was just being a terrible interviewee and would answer the question, but they would say, what do you think of some of the common roadblocks that people do when they're making a podcast? My response was just reading the questions they're given and not putting any thought into it. <laughs> because who is that fun for? What's the point? Yeah, what's the point? Whenever anybody came to me with even a little trickle of original thought, I want to ask this question or I want to have this conversation, I would just blossom like, oh, yeah. So I think what podcasters need to remember is it's not just getting the guest. It's what do you do with that guest? And I'd say nine out of 10 times, if not more often, that guest will respond to having that different conversation because I don't care who you are, you get tired of talking about the same questions over and over and over again or the same things. When you have 80 interviews, I can only imagine. <laughs> I remember one time I was interviewing Chuck, a guy who wrote Fight Club. I can't remember his last name. Starts with a P. Chuck B. Yeah, Chuck P. He was doing a book tour for some reason. I was in Washington. They asked me to interview him. And the first question I asked him was, do you ever get tired of talking about Fight Club? He literally had a shocked look on his face. His response was, no, I'm not tired of talking about it. But some elements of it, I get really tired of talking about. I'm sure it's the same elements he gets asked over and over and over again. 
with a novel like Fight Club and the cultural impact it had, both as a book and as a movie, there's always going to be something to talk about. He's breaking the first rule, though. (laughs) One of the things in the book that just screams out is just being authentic, particularly when it comes to podcasting. I think you were talking about interviewers not playing the role of the interviewer, but being themselves, and that really is their one role. And it made me think, can you teach being authentic? Because I think people see very popular content creators being authentic or themselves, and they think that's really simple. I could do that, and I could earn a lot of money from being me and sharing it with a lot of people. But I think being in this game, it makes you appreciate how being authentic is actually very difficult. There's always a reason to hide something of yourself. And so I wonder whether there's a way in which you can teach authenticity or at least help someone become themselves in public. I always say there's two things you can't teach. One is passion and the other is curiosity. You can't fake those things. However, what you can do is often when I meet people and getting them to be a host is a matter of teaching them how to be themselves, how to be comfortable, how to not feel like they have a role to fill that they have to become a character as they get more and more comfortable in the role, often through just trying and repeating and doing things over and over again, they blossom, they kind of emerge. There's a podcast we have coming out this spring, and the host is a really well-known poet and author and advocate. His first couple interviews where he was interviewing other people were really stiff. He just sat down and read the questions we gave him and had some interaction, but not a lot. And then he came into one recording Having just gotten off a red-eye flight, he's like, I'll be honest, guys, I didn't read any of the prep. I don't know what to do. Start here and just follow your muse. And he went in, and because he hadn't done all the prep, now this is not saying that people shouldn't do prep, but he just followed his own natural curiosity about the person. And the first question he asked her was about her hometown. We'd never put any question like that. Oh, my God, what's going on? He was trying to connect her upbringing to her work. And it worked beautifully. And it's something we never would have thought of for him. Just by being himself, we got so much of a better thing out of him. I recently did a recording with Mary Chapin Carpenter, where she was interviewing someone else. And we had to write copy for her as an introduction. And we wrote this really flat, boring introduction for her. We knew we could redo it later. But at the end of the interview, she was just talking about, wow, that was a great conversation. And the tape was still rolling. And she was talking about what she liked about it and some of the points that really resonated with her. And afterwards, we took that observation and we rewrote it as the introduction using words and ideas we never would have put together. But that was her. Instead of doing the host job of reading this very stale intro, she actually was speaking what moved her. It lit up. So it's not a matter of teaching someone to be authentic. It's figuring out how to get it out of them and get them comfortable with being themselves and exposing themselves in that way. It's an interesting contrast in some ways to this conversation we had with somebody who works in radio more on the sports side where sports radio sports podcasting and something that he mentioned was you want authenticness but you also have to understand what you represent and leaning into that brand of character it was slightly different in the sense that it was lean more into the character that you are and that way you're recognizable to the audience this is what you represent Do you think that is specific to that medium? Do you think that is something that you would just generally disagree with? Or do you think there's a happy medium in between there? A lot of ensemble work, morning zoo shows or sports talk shows or panel shows and podcasts, intentionally or not, everyone casts themselves in a role. 
when I was at NPR, I worked with a group of people there who created a podcast called Pop Culture Happy Hour. Never had any meetings when we started this. We never set any intentions. So we just go in there and wing it every week. And I went in and I watched one of their recordings. I'm like, oh no, you all have roles. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as that's coming from, I'm contributing something authentic here. When you are a character and it's authentic to a part of you, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a defined role you have in that group. Even in friends group, when you get together with people regularly for a happy hour, roles emerge in that too. Is this a normal construct? So I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it. And he may just be choosing to frame these things differently than I do. But I think in their undercurrent, they're probably the exact same idea of define your role based off of what you can bring. For many years, we talked about radio as being the most intimate medium. Podcasting takes it to a completely different level of intimacy between a listener and a creator. And boy, listeners can sniff it out pretty quickly <laughs> yeah. if you are pretending to be something you're not. As you elaborated on that more, I would say you perfectly aligned with the way that he describes it. So it's authentic, but it is a role and it fits together and different groups fit together differently. But in terms of intimacy, it brings up an interesting concept on something that I find really interesting and enjoy, which is breaking the fourth wall. I don't think you wrote about it much directly in the book, but I would be curious to get your thoughts on when it's beneficial, when it's not beneficial. When I think of NPR even something like Serial, you're getting a lot of Sarah's thoughts throughout the episodes. And there's this direct communication with the listener. For many of our shows, which are focused around business and investing, it's a conversation with a guest. And those two are having that conversation. You might get an intro and an outro with some direct communication to the listener, but it's largely plain vanilla. So do you have frameworks or thoughts on when it is beneficial to have that more direct communication with a listener and how to go about doing that? Yeah, I do. It's 100% of the time you're communicating directly to a listener. 100% of the time. They are always the subject of every conversation in the sense of they are the recipient of the conversation. Even when you are talking with a group of people, you should all be making sure that this person who's at that table, the listener, gets every reference. Maybe they're a regular listener and they know some of the inside jokes or the way that people tend to riff off each other, but that the listener is the focal point of this conversation. And I think it's great. I always encourage people to talk to the listener directly one-to-one. -one. We do this in radio too. Don't say, we heard this and we don't believe this. That's not a very powerful statement. Then if I'm telling you, I heard this and I don't believe it. That's a very strong statement. Getting rid of the, the royal we it's so much more intentional and direct. And someone who's receiving that message thinks it's directed to them. When you use the we, think you should drop by who is you. You is often thought of as being a plural, a reference to the audience. I tell everyone, when you're writing, when you're speaking in audio, speak to one person. A great example is we had a host recently who had a bad habit of saying, well, guest, why don't you tell the audience about this time when you were this way, you know, doing this. And I'd be like, no, 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 Try that again. But instead saying, I'm so fascinated by this time. Could you share it right now? Making it less like you're talking to an audience as if it's some blob. Or even better yet, say, I am sure the listener wants to hear this story. And there's an even better version of that. There's all sorts of ways to make it so you're speaking to one person because it really helps connect. I don't know about you, but when I have this, I start to sweat. 
I eat this hot pepper as I start to sweat. I don't know about you. You could be 10,000 people. It could be a million people, but it feels like it's one person. And if it's something that's written, a podcast that's written, every sentence should be written for the benefit of the listener. Nothing should exist unless it's pointed at the listener. And just to hammer that point home, I think it's so interesting and important in terms of the words you use, referring to them as you or the listener. When I'm listening to a podcast, almost cringe when I'm referred to as the listener, because to your point, I feel like I'm there with you, i.e. the host. So are there in your mind, big cardinal sins or things that you definitely should use as drawing the listener in? There are unforced errors. You can train yourself to get out of those habits. And it's a really good thing. Uh, you just did it with me. If you brainstorm just about any solution, you know, someone else is going to find a way to even make it more clever as to how to make it less obvious or drawing less of a line between the guest and the creator and the audience. There's a constant thing going on. And there's times I write copy and I give it to somebody else and I'm like, Eric, this has wheeze in it. So <laughs> it happens to everyone. 15 years in the corporate world where I was trained to use we rather than I. And I even saw a great post. You could tell a lot about a company by the press release and how many times it says I versus we, viewing it as a negative in terms of using I. But this is an entirely different medium, entirely different discussion, entirely different reason to use the phrase I. I think I need to go back and do a lot of editing to my previous podcasts to change up the questions. <laughs> it's not just a matter of uh, does a listener feel connected to this? It's also just more powerful writing. My son is 13 and is now writing a lot of essays in school. And he's like, oh, teachers say don't use I, we, our, those type of things. And I tell him the reason behind that is not just to avoid using them. It's because if you say, I think this is wrong, it's not as powerful as saying this is wrong. If you take a approach to podcast content, which some people do, some people definitely don't, of there should be nothing there that doesn't forward this conversation or forward this idea. It's like, well, then let's make the writing more powerful, even if all we're writing is introductions. Yeah, traps I fall into all of the time. Everybody does. One of the more provocative things you wrote was, I've never seen a single dollar spent on marketing a podcast that I feel paid off. And you referenced you wrote the book in 2019. I guess the first question is, do you still think that's true? I guess we've seen some changes in the distribution mediums, whether that's through shorter form content on YouTube or YouTube in general, TikTok, et cetera. Is it timeless advice? How do you think about it? And I guess for people who haven't read the book, what are the strategies of growth that you do feel pay off? That's very interesting because I get asked that a lot because even in the couple years since that book came out, the world's podcast marketing and podcasting has changed so much. You still think that I've never seen a single dollar spent. And I think that it's more true than not true. At the time when I wrote that, a lot of money that was being spent on podcasting was on traditional advertising media, such as advertisements, print ads, display ads, social media posts that would pay social, a lot of the more traditional ways of marketing like a movie or a television show and so forth. I've seen some people, including myself when I was at Audible, spend serious money to see if we could make the needle blip a little bit and never saw anybody spending any money that made a difference. There was a while where I thought I was in real trouble with that comment. When people started to understand the value of promoting a podcast inside another podcast. And so you saw a lot of paid promos happening. And that was really effective until people started to overdo it and overplay it. I mean, there was once recently, I was listening to a 
podcast and there were promos for four other podcasts. A, there's no way that's effective. And B, how much time do you think I have to listen to podcasts? And so even things that have proven to be useful get overused. And the thing that I think you just can't argue with is the effect of across promos, one host talking about another, a host being a guest on another podcast is a great way to promote that most of the ways to promote podcasts don't cost anything, the effective ones. There's just a matter of setting up arrangements and working out something that's equitable and fair and make it happen for people to change impressions on cross promos. It's more effective than a lot of those traditional type of ways of advertising media. However, there's a couple things. When I say these things are effective, we've done many of them. And you consider cross promo campaign effectiveness if it has 1% effectiveness, 1%. So I think that there's a lot we have yet to learn about how to effectively market podcasts. And if 1% conversion on a cross promo is considered a success, and that's not my measure of success. That's the guy who started Chartable, Dave's Rob. He's like, yeah, you hit 1%, you're doing really well. That doesn't feel very good to me. So that's it. That's the big one. Also, we're very, very unsophisticated in how we do cross-promotion of podcasts. How do you know which is the podcast to cross-promote on? And also a message, we've known this from radio for many years, this is why you hear radio ads over and over and over again. You have to hear something several times to remember it. And so if you're doing a cross-promo campaign, you do it one time, how do you know that people are hearing it enough to remember and act on it? So there's a lot of sophistication has to develop with that. Are there things you can spend money on to drive listening? Yes, there are some paid promotional opportunities and podcast apps that are crazy effective, but the podcast apps don't reach that many people. The ones that do that paid placement. If Spotify or Apple Podcasts, just those two decided to do paid advertising inside of their apps, that would definitely be worth the expense of doing it. But otherwise, I just don't think it's the right way to put your energy. I think it's this interesting thing where you are seeing podcasters show up on other podcasts, podcasters advertise on other podcasts. And to me, it feels like maybe we're starting to eat from the same pie as one another rather than grow the pie. Maybe we can convert some people to listening to more podcasts. But I understand you also want to fish where the fish are. You painted an either or situation. It can be at both ends. You can get people to listen to more podcasts. That's healthy behavior. And get more people to listen to podcasts. That's also healthy behavior where everybody benefits. Encouraging people to listen more who are already listening is actually the easiest way to acquire. Going to someone who listens to podcasts and get them to listen to your podcast is relatively easy compared to any other form of intake of new listeners. Absolutely. It's the logical place to go. Where the fish already are, you know that you're already getting somebody who listens to a podcast rather than trying to convert somebody who may or may not be listening via another advertising medium. I want to transition a bit to actually launching a show. And I think you laid out some of the best framework that we've seen. The best thing to do may just be to use an example via our own show and what we are launching. You've said before, you like to be very specific, very blunt, and we want that. We welcome that. So maybe we can use it through our own lens. What we've come up with as a 10-word description is join two media outsiders while they build a media business. Your immediate reaction to that in terms of a 10-word. It's not listener-focused. It's not listener-focused. It's about you. It's not about the listener. So that's the, that's the problem. And I don't know if I would have given you that same feedback two years ago. The idea of writing a 10-word description forces you to find something that is unique and cannot be duplicated. 
that's number one, is it really is focused on you rather than the benefit of somebody to listen. And I think you could do a better job. You're not just two media outsiders, but what else makes you different than someone else who is trying to build a media business and chronicling it? So one way to bring the listener into it is to better clarify who you are. Or it could be two media outsiders often have to get them longer to get them right, and then you make them shorter. That's the one thing that popped out to me was join two media outsiders is a good start, but it could even be more specific. We said two investors, <laughs> old Excel nerds that loved content and thought they can do it themselves. The Excel nerds is surprisingly interesting to me because basically what you're talking about, if I can make an assumption, is two smart non-creatives trying to become smart creatives. The Excel nerds thing is so clever because it gets very analytical most people who document journeys are documenting their feelings and experiences, not what they think. People who are willing to think and analyze are willing to be much more self-critical. And people who documented other journeys tend to be much more emotionally critical. I shouldn't have felt that way. I shouldn't have raised my voice. Why did I go back to him? Or why did she not love me anymore? That's all very emotional-based. If the Excel nerds things give me the impression that this could be something where you could be analytical about your journey, and that may be something you're trying to get over. Those are the things that me start to make it, wow, this could be different than anybody else trying to break into podcasting who's not in podcasting, if that makes sense. How do you shift it to be listener-focused? Or is that already halfway there? You could get rid of the word join. No, it's interesting because I would have assumed join would be drawing listeners in, be talking to a listener saying, join us. Give yourself permission to make this 20 words and then edit it down to 10. Something I tell people when they're stuck on this. Join, yes, that's a very passive way to participate. Maybe you switch it around. Learn how to build a media business with two Excel nerds. Because if you do it that way, if you say learn how to build a media business as two Excel nerds, try and fail and try again. So give yourself permission to make it longer and then get it down by switching it around to what the benefit is to the listener instead of the feature. The feature is you two guys and what makes you unique building the media business, but the benefit is they get to learn or avoid the mistakes of two Excel nerds as they build a media business. That's probably 12 or 14. That's probably more apps. <laughs> if you say avoid the mistakes, if I listen, I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to learn from their experience. And I won't end up duplicating it. And so they're much more present in the intention of the show. That makes a ton of sense. I think we're 75% there now and we managed to rewrite that. So we'll go back to the drawing board and try again. But it does make me feel better that you said the advice has changed over the last few years. So I give ourselves a free pass as we try and rethink about that one. One of the things that I preach a lot lately that I wasn't preaching when I wrote that book was every good podcast solves a problem. So if that's the case, the problem could be I'm bored or I want to learn more about American history or I want to laugh or I want to hear a podcast from two people who are hiking the Appalachian Trail because I wanted to do it someday. Solving a problem by helping people. So I always tell people that if that's the case, if that's what makes something successful, a lot of people who you solve a problem for, in the very beginning, designed for that. So what is the problem we want to solve? For who? When I'm done with this interview, I'm going to go in the other room and working with an organization who has just a massive amount of resources and incredible leading thinkers. I'm working on defining a podcast for them. We're working together to find a podcast. And the problem we're solving is I need the information necessary to change my company. I want to move forward. I want to advance. I want to progress. And that's the problem you're solving for me is you have the knowledge I need to make that change. Thinking that way, when you're even writing that 10-word statement, that's how elemental that thinking has become for me of solve that problem. 
let the listener know what problem you're solving because then they'll say, this is for me. Yeah, well, it puts focus on the listener, doesn't it, to your point. What about format? How important is it to nail the format before you launch the show? So we intend to do interviews like this one. We intend to have conversations between ourselves. We intend to reflect on things that we've done, bring people into our business. I guess we're kind of crossing multiple formats as you might define them. Is that fine? Are we good to refine that over time? And maybe we'll evolve and do more of one thing and less of another. How would you think about it? Well, my business partner, Jesse, who I mentioned, has a great phrase that I think I'll quote her on, which is that I love to spend a lot of time defining a format and then break it as often as I can justify breaking it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we put so much emphasis on format because it feels like structure. It feels like, okay, we do this this way, and these are the segments of the show. We'll give them names. They'll always be in the same order. Or this is how we bring guests in and how we use them. And there is a function to that, but it's very much a function for us. A minimal amount of structure for a listener, but you have to ask yourself, and you get some of those really interesting questions of like, what problem am I solving and for whom? And what is the emotional exchange that's happening here? Because even podcasts that are about fact, that are about news, whatever, are based on emotion. How does the world make me feel? How do I want it to make me feel? Podcasts are very, very emotional experiences, and that comes from that sense of intimacy. When you recognize that's what the exchange is, gives you permission to do other things. Here's a really good example. We produce a podcast in this company called Where Should We Begin with a Relationship Therapist named Esther Perel, which is basically we record her giving therapy to a couple for three and a half hours, and then we cut it down to a little less than an hour and drop in some Esther points where she's reflecting on in the conversation. And we've done... 40 or 50 of those. And when we started wanting to produce more content, we're like, okay, if we would produce more of those sessions. But what if we just experiment around with using Esther, talking to people about relationships and other formats and thinking there's different ways we can use Esther because the deliverable to the listener is, I have so many different relationships in my life. I have romantic relationships, family relationships, coworkers, neighbors. I need help. I need to build my skill, my understanding so I can be better at all of them. And Esther is a great conduit I learned from her. And so, well, if the idea is to learn about relationships from the stair, all of a sudden having those sessions is not the only way we can do that. And so we start putting these in her feed. And we've never had a single person, never once, say, this isn't what I was expecting. It's focusing on what is the deliverable to the listener and are there ways we can get it? And it doesn't need to be a format. It doesn't have to be rigid. It can change. It can say, we have a couple shows here. We did one with Ted called Far Flung ended its run, but it was a great podcast in two seasons. And no two episodes are structured the same. They don't have the same elements. They don't appear in the same order. They're not the same quote-unquote format. But no one would think that they're different. And each one is recorded in a different city around the world, sometimes different languages. Nobody gets upset that it's different. <laughs> it's because the experience they're getting of being transported to this place, meeting these characters, that never changes. In terms of branding, and I'm going to talk about umbrella brands, platforms. You worked at NPR. I certainly think of NPR having a certain type of listener. Obviously, there's many different types that sit under the umbrella. But I think of an NPR listener as being a certain type of person. When we're thinking about launching this podcast, we have other business and investing shows, which largely target the same audience. I think there's very little difference between who listens to our different shows this, I think, is actually going to sit probably furthest away from all of our other shows. 
does that defeat a lot of the purpose of being associated with a brand? Do you think about that much in terms of how much similarity there has to be between the various shows that sit under one umbrella? Or do you think that's completely thrown out the window when it comes to starting a show and just starting from basically scratch with a listener base? I don't think there's a right answer to that. I think it's a matter of intention. First off, I think creators that if you are a creator and you are doing, quote unquote, something very different, it's still from you. And so it's still going to have your worldview and your touch on it. So it may not be as wildly different as you think it is because you are the connecting tissue. I think it's much more about intentionality. I think if someone's looking to build a network, having multiple touch points to an audience is really smart. Wondery is a great example of that. Wondery has two or three different verticals that they want to be not just producing in, but they want to feed the same audience over and over again with their business programs, with true crime storytelling shows they have. They're always focused on, let's give them the next thing. The next commercial that was going to play every 60 seconds. Yeah, maybe they're also focused on that. <laughs> that seems like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, okay, when someone's done listening to a 10-part series from us, what are they listening to next? Because it may take us six months to get the next season together. What are they going to listen to? How about we give them things like what they like so they can continue to listen? There was a while there several years ago when Wondery would put out a new show and it would just light up and become number one on day one. And people would say, how did they do that? How do they keep doing this? There's got to be something going on here. Yeah, it's something going on. It's they figured out who their audience is that they're really good at creating content for and they just go after it over and over and over again, they're feeding that person, that profile. So that's a way to do podcasting. It's a very successful way. And then other companies, creators, say we want to actually go for breadth rather than depth. And so we're going to create a bunch of different things to touch different people. And if they can make that work, great, good for them. What have you learned about stopping shows? The book is largely about starting shows. It's an interesting thing that we've come across a bit more often recently. And I think in your career, you have too. Podcasting is this never-ending relationship unless you're doing a specific series. When do you know that you should stop a show? How do you stop a show? Give me the 101 on that. Have you ever heard of the band LCD Sound System? There's a film called Shut Up and Play the Hits, which is basically a concert film from what was at that point their last concert before they took a couple years off. In Madison Square Gardens, in the beginning, James Murphy, who is the singer of LCD Sound System, is being interviewed by a journalist. His name is Chuck Klosterman. And Chuck says to James, when people start a band, they always think about the aspirations for the band. But when you start a band, do you ever think about how it will end? And James Murphy can't answer. He's kind of dumbstruck by that question. And I think a lot of times, creators are so excited about doing something. And anyone who creates anything, and you guys included, know it's hard to create something. It's hard to make something go into the world. The world is not looking for a new thing that you're doing. And you have to find the people who are going to love it and connect with them. That's hard, hard, hard work. Yet, even in the course of that hard work, it's really smart to think in the beginning of how it ends. There's the financial how it ends. We can't afford to do this. Yet, there are some projects where people continue production, even though it's losing money because they think it's a more of a longer-term bet. Some of those end up being true, some of them not true. But a real easy one, and I've had these conversations with people before because often when I'm in the position, I'm often put in the position of having this conversation with creators who... The executive thinks the show needs to end, or we need to start thinking about the end because we can see that end is coming and we need to talk to them so we know when that point comes that we're all there together. 
often in those conversations, I start with, it's not the first thing I say to them, but we've been talking for a while and I segue into this. I'm like, tell me what it's going to be like when it's not fun anymore. What are the components that make this not joyful for you to make? Joyful sometimes is the wrong word to use because it may be a very serious podcast, but oftentimes they'll start to play back to you what the criteria should be. When I can't get anyone to help me make this internally in my organization, when I run out of things to say, it's hard to come up with topics. And then what makes a good topic and just get them to define those things out in a very short but powerful conversation, you can get them to list those things out for them. When we are not seeing response from the audience, it indicates they're having as good an experience. That's another common one is when I started thinking that the audience isn't into it anymore. People will spell that out. And it's really good, I think, even in the beginning to say, we're super excited about this, but eventually we're going to run out of things. And if anything, that gives you permission to prove how wrong your thinking was when you started. A great example is TED Radio Hour, which is still a podcast that's robust. It's almost 10 years old. It's been weekly production for almost 10 years. When we started, the folks at TED and I thought we had maybe two years worth of material. Maybe two years worth of material. So our intention was, let's run and go. And when we think we're hitting the bottom of the well, we'll stop. That was our intention then. Almost no one who was involved in the creation of that show is still involved and even has a different host now. But the idea was keep running until it doesn't feel like those ideas come anymore. As long as the ideas come, they feel empowered to continue to produce that show. Obviously, most institutions have the financial considerations are very real and guided, but there should be an editorial consideration of the experience we want listeners to have. There's a guy who used to be the CEO of NPR named Jarl Moon. He used to own radio stations and run radio station networks. He ran MTV and VH1 at one point. And he started the e-channel and all that stuff in media. And he used to always tell people at his radio stations, if it isn't happening in the hallways, it's not happening on the air. <laughs> so good. Which means if it's not a fun place to work, you can't expect it to sound fun for the audience on the air. That's a very important cultural consideration too. If we're not having fun, how do we expect anybody else to think this is fun? A lot of times when you make the decision to end something, it's unpopular with somebody. It could be a matter of they're losing their job or it could be that they disagree with you on this. Rarely, almost never. I'm trying to think if there's a single example in my life where we've made that call and it was the wrong call. It rhymes a lot with investing where you have a million books about how to evaluate when to buy a stock or when to enter investment but you don't have any books on when to sell the investment. And that is a key piece of the equation, as we learn with every market downturn. It is a key piece. And the only thing that's come out is having a thesis that you write down as to why you're buying it. And that's something that you can revisit in the future and say, is there thesis creep? Which means I have a completely different reason for owning this right now. And that's something worth examining, similar to making a show. What would be the criteria for which we would decide to end this or sell this? So I think that it certainly does rhyme very much with the uh, the investing world. You guys have the criteria, it sounds like. You just need to apply it from your old medium to your new medium. So it's hard. I can be a little brutal because I believe that good things do not mean that they last forever. There's a couple of shows I've started that still are in existence. I don't think should be anymore. I don't make those decisions for those shows anymore. But they did their thing. And all they're doing now is retreading the same stuff over and over again. Take those people and start working on a new idea. 
rather than just producing the same thing over and over again. Everybody's always convinced that this is the idea. This is their idea. And the truth is, everybody has good ideas all the time. And when they let go of one idea, it just creates more brain space to explore what else they could be doing. And there's always an answer to that question. I'd love to close out with a broader question. It's why hasn't the top 50 podcast list changed much in recent years? And do you think that means anything for the podcast industry as a whole? I think it actually changes quite a bit. I think it's a little bit of an untrue observation. You do see some that are perennially in that list. So first off, let's back up a second and say no one should be evaluating their success or failure based off a chart. Those charts are what used to be referred to in the music industry as heat charts, which don't measure absolute exposures, just how much momentum do you have? How many new subscribers are you getting? Apple's actually published a couple of things that hint as to how those charts are created and what influences them. And it's very clear that reviews don't. The biggest thing is, are new people listening? Are new people subscribing? A great example is when we launched Invisibilia. We put the trailer up to Invisibilia and it got... 50,000 listeners and went to number three on the podcast charts the first week it was out. It was number three on the podcast chart. Number four on the podcast that chart was Wait, Don't Tell Me, which had 4 million downloads that week and was one chart position behind. And I've also seen, because there's so many new podcasts, we did a podcast this year called This Is Dating, which we produced and put out, our company did. And every metric, it did phenomenally well except it got up to number 10 on the podcast charts. Everything else was great. And I just kept telling people, I never care about charts and I don't care about charts. It's a lousy way to do that. So if you take that in mind that those are heat charts, it is a little weird that some shows continue to have momentum and heat, but it just shows how many people coming into podcasting for the first time, figuring out what they like and discovering things. My hope is that our whole thinking around charts will eventually mature and evolve into that they actually may be a great way to discover things and learn things. We'll see. If you've got time for one more question, as I was reading through your book on podcasting, it made me wonder why you wrote it as a book and didn't publish it as a podcast. Did you think about doing it as a podcast? And why did you choose a book? It's very interesting. Well, I've written four books, so it's not that unusual. I've actually written a fifth that hasn't been published yet. The written form is something I've always used as a way to express myself and express ideas. I have a newsletter which comes out every couple of weeks, which is another example of that, which is, if anything, is a continuation of the book, a continuation of that level of thinking. I just find I'm better suited to express myself in written form. I actually did a host podcast once, and I hated the experience of hosting it. <laughs> Interesting. Because it was so confining. I was so critical of myself and... It was very hard for me to just have that one role, and I'd be much happier not being in this role. If I did nothing else but host, that might be different, but I'd never in that situation. So it just felt like the right medium for me to express things. And also, my inspiration for writing the book, well, I tried to learn how to be a photographer a couple of years ago and with very little success. Most of the books that I learned from about photography were really about light and exposure and framing and so on and so forth. And have been written in the 70s before there even were digital cameras. And yet they still are relevant today. And I'm like, let's write a book that focuses on that. So regardless of what platform it's on or what way someone consumes it, it's still going to be relevant to them in 10 or 15 years. If anything, I would update if there's a new edition of it. I would update the references to podcasts because even some of the 
podcasts I referenced three, four years ago no longer exist or not the choices I would make to illustrate those ideas now. I love that. We're big fans of timeless content rather than simply timely content. So we are huge fans of the book and really appreciate you coming on, giving us some appropriate, constructive and critical feedback. We'll be sure to incorporate that into the show. Thank you very much for your time, Eric. Thank you and good luck. I got a sense that he doubted us. In what way? Just the abrupt ending and the tone of the good luck. The way he snuck out. Well, it was the good luck. I think it was because we were five, six minutes past and he probably had a meeting and he was like, I just need to run. I wasn't quite as cynical as you. It's not cynical. I seek doubters. In the back of my head, I want to say, Eric, the podcast guy doesn't believe that we can succeed. So it's going to be that much more enjoyable when we do. It's probably because he went on his book tour and he had 80 interviews and they were all the same questions. We probably just asked all those same questions. We didn't even have the questions in front of us. Yeah, I did try to mix it up, but that's fair. We might have asked some of the same questions. I have to say the thing that killed me the most, and I know you definitely didn't understand this reference, but when he said he was asking the author if he hates talking about Fight Club, have you seen the movie Fight Club? No. Oh, God. He was killing me. He kept talking about Fight Club and asking the author to talk about Fight Club. And the biggest thing in the movie Fight Club is the first rule about Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule about Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. And it's just killing me the entire time. I don't know how often that happens to you in interviews, but it happens to me sometimes. And I'm dying at myself because I want to get that comment in. That's so funny because you actually said that you broke the first rule. Yeah, we're going to have to edit it out. I don't remember reading that in this book. I don't think he understood it either. It was just, oh, man, cultural reference that everybody is missing. But yeah, I crushed your moment. Most of the time it's because they're all movie references and I haven't seen any other movies. That's something for me to work on. Watch more movies. Yeah. No, I think I learned that he has adjusted his view on the industry. I think that I learned that the exercise of the constraints is the most important thing. So it's not so much the 10 word description. It's the exercise of using a 30 word description and shortening it to 10 words. And he was cutting, I think, some words and just trying to find ways to cut words. I also realized that you were the one who added the word join and he did not like the word join. So I just want to remove myself from any blame for that word. I actually take issue with that. I distinctly remember putting the word learn in there yesterday and you took that out. So maybe I put join in, but you took out learn, which was what we seem to be settling on. So I think we're at least square. We haven't settled yet. We don't just listen to one person give us a 10 minute answer and not understand what we do for business and then just accept it. I think even he would agree with that. I also don't want to be challenged as an Excel nerd because I barely know what a pivot table is. Most investors don't use pivot tables, I would say. Just the VLOOK up. Yeah. Excel nerd might not be the right thing. It's just catchy, which I understand why he was attracted to that. He's pretty enthusiastic about it. He was, which didn't surprise me. After reading and listening to a lot of his other stuff, I knew that would be the type of differentiating thing that he would probably be attracted to. Do your research. I do think the advice on using I rather than we is something that I could incorporate more. And I think there's a few times where I can distinctly think of me referencing the audience or our listener base. And that's probably not ideal, specifically with breakdowns. It's actually counterintuitive because you would think 
I'm drawing our audience in by referencing us, we, because your audience is by your side. But actually, that would alienate them because you should just be talking naturally like you are to someone and knowing that that person is sat next to you. You wouldn't say in the pub, <laughs> asking your friend a question and your other friends sat next to you, you wouldn't say, we were just thinking because you have no idea what they were thinking. But that person would be interested in what you are saying as I was wondering. So yeah, I thought that was a very interesting insight. And the whole thing about authenticity is so loud and clear in his book. And I think removing whatever blocker there is for you to be fully authentic, I think is super important. And he was mentioning the intros and writing intros that makes it feel like it's coming from you. I need to have this conversation with Patrick about writing his intros because I think they're getting worse and that's on me. I would love for him to jump with both feet back in and say, I'll write the intros. Because when I look back through the list of Invest Like the Best episodes, when he wrote them, the intros are so good. And they're such an important piece of the episode. I think I might ask him if he has the time and inclination to write them again himself, because I think it would make a big difference. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that's the portion of breaking the fourth wall that actually occurs with Invest Like the Best, where you have like a direct communication to whoever the listener is on the other side of it. So I agree. And I think intros, you can feel when they're authentic versus when you're going through the motions. And I think someone has referenced using the sandwich strategy, which is you can start with something. You can even start with chat GPT-3 to give you a prompt for an intro, a script, but then you start to edit it into your own voice. And I think most of the time, it's just a starting point. I think Eric Golden oftentimes takes a starting point for his intro and then edits it to his own voice. So I agree with you there. A listener and you and all that. I actually think what a lot of platforms do is that's why they have nicknames for their audiences, even nicknames for particular fans of hosts. So if you have a show where you have different authentic personalities, but people are attracted to specific personalities, you might have a nickname for those people that are attracted to that. And then it creates a fan base, but it's a specific fan base not just our audience, which can be very sterile and generic and plain. So there's something there. 100%. When I was doing market research and I'm listening to Call Her Daddy, the way she uses Daddy Gang is amazing. Use it all the time. And it's just such an amazing subliminal message to her tribe that are ardent listeners and followers. When I first heard it, I was like, this is weird that she keeps referencing this. The more I listened, I was like, no, no, this is brilliant. And you told me that it happens on a load of other podcasts. I think that's such a good strategy. Barstool has the stoolies and there's countless other examples of it. Don't know who the making media heads, the making media militia, the MM militia. We'll workshop it. The media heads. No, we need to move out of finance. That would be too vocal headish of us. Maybe we can come up with the mediaites. Yeah, the Excel nerd thing is really... The spreadies. How about that? We'll put it on the list. It's a contender. Let's put it that way. TVC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should talk about how our show ends. I think that was one thing that we learned. I've thought about that a lot. When do we stop doing this? When we get Walt Disney as a guest. Mic drop at the end is done. That'll be good. This is an extremely dumb question. Is he still alive? He's frozen. Okay, okay, now I get it. Again, another movie reference. I was waiting for you to ask me, well, isn't he dead? For me to reply with the frozen, <laughs> but you set me up even better for that. No, I'm going to have an answer to that. I don't have it yet. I've got an answer see how you feel about this. There are two things that would need to happen for us to stop doing this. One, we stop learning. Two, we stop having fun. 
they're probably weighted in some way. But that ultimately is a huge piece of this. Learning probably weighted a bit more highly. Every time I go into a conversation, I want to learn something that makes us better at our jobs and makes Colossus stronger. What did you learn that's going to make you better from this one? The intro point? Yeah, the intro point. And also just how you reference your audience. I think every time we either bring a host on or I can now send an email to all our hosts and say, hey, when you're trying to think about how to reference your audience, because there's a natural tendency to do because you want to feel like you're talking to them. Here's how to do that most effectively. We've done this for a few months now in different iterations. And I've enjoyed every single recording. If I come ahead of a recording or after one thinking that was a grind, I think we start after asking ourselves some questions. Mm-hmm. I think that may happen. Might have a long week where it could be a grind, but I'm not going to pick nits with this. I would like for it to be a little bit more like milestone-ish. None of these people like Bezos doesn't do it for me. I would keep going. Bezos, there'd be another episode after that. Elon, no. Trying to think if there's a person that we hosted that would be really great or... There's a thing that we did, but no, not arriving there. And I agree with you. If we stop learning, which isn't going to happen, the more you know you don't know, the fun thing makes sense. Your way seems backwards to me of a specific destination. And then you get off the train. I respect people that go out on top. Elway, Jordan, almost. But there's something about going out on your own terms at the top. It's kind of difficult to do that. You don't want to be washed up just throwing picks with a busted arm, going out there, looking sad. Did you hear the way he described some of the shows that he doesn't think should still be on the air, but he's not in control of them anymore? You don't want to be one of those. Yeah, I did. I didn't know if he was referencing our show, which hadn't launched yet. It's <laughs> a fair point. It might have been foreshadowing. No, I thought it was good. I thought his book is so powerful that answering the follow-up questions, and I've listened to so much of his work, it's an interesting example of like, where do you stop in terms of your research? finding the right questions asked on the top of that. He gave examples in his book of good interviews on his book tour that just had nothing to do with his book, which that's cool. Maybe they're asking about his childhood or something else and they could weave the book in, but that's not really like helpful to us. So I did find it a little bit trickier versus the Spike interview, which I felt like I was actually able to learn a little bit more from that one. And maybe that's because Spike hasn't written a book that I've read. So that could be the answer. Honestly, I think that's it. I think we can use 75% of the content and there was a few original bits or a few different examples which we picked up but i hope other people learn something same and i think they will no i shouldn't say that why because you can't reference people in third person i hope you learn something the audience is always omnipresent you over there i hope you learn something <laughs> you do awesome all right very good very good